Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning a little bit about national anthems. Every week we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we are big fans of O Canada. We don't like it. We hate it. It's our, like, standard for bad, boring anthems by which we compare all other anthems. It's bad and boring. So, this week we are going to be talking a little bit about Eswatini. Uh, are you familiar with Eswatini at all? I am not. I had never heard of Eswatini before today. I had heard of Eswatini once in my previous research. Um, it was the country I was thinking of. When I when I drew it, I said I thought I had come across it in my previous research, mm-hmm. and I was correct. They do have a little bit of history with Lesotho. They're very close by. Okay. Um, you may know Eswatini as what the country was known as up until only 2018, and that is Swaziland. See, that I've heard of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I find... I I didn't hear about the name change at all, like, in the news or anything when it happened, so... Maybe it just went under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. The CBC didn't care. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we, we are going to learn a bit about them today. Let's just start by giving a background of sort of what this country is. So it's a landlocked country uh, just off the east coast of South Africa, like okay. Southern Africa. It borders on South Africa and mm-hmm. on Mozambique. Okay. Uh, so it's got a subtropical climate, but it's got a lot of altitude changes and some strong maritime winds. So it's got a really strong variety of climate for a country of its size and it is one of a small handful actually of absolute monarchies remaining in the world alongside brunei interesting uh it is the last remaining absolute monarchy in africa Mm. and it's got a kind of interesting political structure where they've got two it's kind of a dual monarchy. It's ruled by the Nguenyama, which is the the king, uh, which translates to the lion, and the Nlovukati, which is the, the queen or the queen mother, uh, which also translates to the she-elephant. Okay. Um, so That's the Nguenyama is the monarch of the nation, like the political leader. Mm. Uh, the Nlovukati... Uh, and Heretofore, I'm going to just be saying king and queen or queen mother because I'm probably butchering these as always. Fair enough. Uh, the Nlovukati is the spiritual leader of the country oh. and sort of serves. It's almost always the queen mother, not the queen. Um, not like the king's wife. The king usually has a bunch of wives. We'll get more into that later. But uh, it's usually the king's mother who serves as the Nlovukati. That's so interesting. And uh, they will often lead the country then as queen regent after a king's death and sort of during the youth of the heir. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've never heard of anything like that. I hadn't either. Before. I thought it was really interesting. But I kind of love it. We talk so much about this like separation of church and state and stuff and they've just kind of done that. Kind I, of. Kind of. Kind of. We'll get into that okay. a little bit. Okay. At uh, least 
for me, completely ignorant right out of the gate here. That's kind of how it sounds. But right. <laughs> So the earliest evidence we have of people in the region are some stone tools dating back uh, about 250,000 years ago. Uh, then we have evidence of hematite ore being quarried as early as 42,000 years ago, wow. which would make it one of the earliest mining operations evidenced oh, in the world. That's interesting. Um, so this is where my timeline got incredibly sketchy. And okay. this, the next several thousand years are sort of war where I was getting completely different timelines and stories from all of my sources. So I really tried to piece this together. If anyone from Eswatini, uh, if any Siswati people are listening, please tell me what I got wrong. I would love to have a clearer idea of what happened here, but this it's English language info on this was a little murky. It's going to happen. If we all spoke, you know, 12 languages, we might, have a better shot, but you're doing what you can. So at some point between like the first and 18th centuries, okay. uh, clans of Bantu speaking peoples, including Sutu speaking peoples, uh, passed through the region, creating pottery and smelting iron oh. along the way. So there's evidence of sort of what they did in their time passing through. Mm -hmm. And this led to a period of instability where a lot of these clans that had just migrated for the region were sort of vying for dominance of it. And one of these clans in the 18th century was led by a guy named Dlamini. Uh, and Dlamini is someone who, just as an ancestor, is going to cast a big, big shadow over the entire history of Eswatini. It is still the Dlamini royal clan that is in power there. Oh. So uh, he would assimilate several nearby clans and create a unified group, almost creating sort of a political identity, an ethnic group uh, in the process. This is kind of the birth of the Swazi people, but mm -hmm. we'll get into that. Um they were called the Bembo Nguni or Nguane. Uh, really unclear. A lot of different translations mm. seem to be bouncing around. Uh, but the, the Bembo Nguni would eventually become the Swazi ethnic group. And the Dlamini Nguni, like that original Dlamini clan, would become the royal clan that is still in power. Okay. Uh, so their first Bembo... Uh, the first Bembo Nguni settlement was founded near what is now the modern city of uh, Langano. Uh, and that is Eswatini's fourth largest city and the capital of the region that it is in. Um, they would end up fleeing northwards into what is now central Eswatini, fearing aggression from nearby kingdoms to the south, the Zulus and the Ndwandwes. Uh, and this would happen around 1820. This area that they ended up fleeing to became a really strong base of operations for them to expand to. So this is actually what I thought was interesting is this is almost exactly what happened in Lesotho mm -hmm. is uh, King Moshushu had assimilated these clans around him in times of hardship, had like been aggressive, but then had taken in the people that he had been aggressive towards and then 
fearing aggression from the Zulus and others, like, went away and found a fortress from which to expand their country. So mm-hmm. there's, I found at least a really strong parallel between Lesotho and Eswatini here. Yeah. Uh, and they are very close by and sort of developing around the exact same time. Mm-hmm. So during uh, this period in the 1800s, they would start to expand under King Sobhuza I, and he was known as the Wonder. Uh, so like I said, they... We talked a bit in the Lesotho episode about how during this time of great famine and hardship, they, having a solid position from which to operate, could strike at these other clans and tribes nearby and then assimilate the people and land into their own Mm -hmm. thing and accept the people back into their own organization. Yeah. Um, And then under... Sabhuza's son, Muswadi II, they had actually ended up expanding their borders way beyond the modern-day borders of mm. Eswatini. Okay. I couldn't really find any exact pictures of, like, comparison of where their borders were, mm. but it seems somewhere between 1860 and 1868 was the largest that the Swazi nation ever was. Okay. Um, And one of the reasons that they did so well in this period is they borrowed a tactic from the Zulu. Now, a lot of the nearby nations were organizing their militaries by sort of clan and tribe. Mm -hmm. Every, Every clan would send in their own people, and those people would work together in a unit. But that meant that there wasn't that much cohesion across mm. units. Yeah. And what the Zulu did was take people of the same age from every clan and oh. make them a unit. So That's you're fighting in, you know, the 20-year-old clan and you look over and see your cousin in the 23-year-old clan right. like or in the 23-year-old unit. It all it creates a lot of cohesion yeah. that wasn't there in the other military structures. Yeah, that's kind of genius because it would be like a cross-generational thing. You'd have exactly. people in all... The, yeah, that's really smart. I've so, never thought of it. Like. From what I understand, that's a big part of what made the Zulu so successful at the time, and that's also what allowed Eswatini to expand the way they did. Yeah. Uh, and we... This guy, Mswati II, he would develop a reputation as, like, the greatest military ruler in the history of the Swazi nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The word Swazi is actually an anglicization of Mswati. Oh, that's cool. I feel like I should have been able to figure that out by myself. It's okay. A lot of words sound like each other that aren't necessarily (laughs) related. That's true. Uh, but during Muswati's reign, I think towards the end of it, the Boer Republic of Transvaal was established. So again, I'm going to bring us back to a Lesotho parallel. Mm. If you remember, we talked about the Orange Free State of the Boers mm-hmm. in that one. I guess the Orange Free State and Transvaal are really sort of parallel republics. They would both end up losing the Second Boer War to England, which is what allowed Britain to gain control of this whole region. But I'm right. getting ahead of myself. Okay. Just okay. 
we're going to start running into the boars in the exact same kind of way that they did in Lesotho. Mm. Um, so this would like lead to problems for Eswatini, not only because the boars were now in the region vying for political dominance of the region, but also because the presence of the boars and the fact that they were not on friendly terms with England brought a lot more British people to the region. Yeah, probably. Uh, especially when boar people in the 1860s discovered gold and diamonds mm. in the region. So all of a sudden, the country is being flooded with European prospectors, a lot of them being British. And that would bring us up towards 1880, where the Transvaal Republic would fight the first Boer War with the UK. Mm. Uh, now, I didn't get too deep into the Boer War, but I believe the first Boer War was just between Transvaal and the UK, whereas the second Boer War was Transvaal and the Orange Free State of the Boers against the UK. Oh, I see. Which was the one where Canada got involved? I believe that was the second Boer okay. War. Okay, okay. Uh, so the... The First Boer War would run from 1880 to 1881 and ended with the Pretoria Convention. So that is a treaty between the UK and the Boers, which essentially politically confirmed independence for the Swazi nation. Okay. Um, they drew up borders of, you know, where the Boers were allowed to go and where the British were allowed to go, and those borders allowed for... I guess what is at this point kind of Swaziland uh, to remain independent. Okay. Um, this would end up being reconfirmed in 1884 at another convention between the British and the Boers. Mm. But in the late 1880s, the Swazi government would grant the white settlers and prospectors in the country sort of a provisional self-government, but the royals... The, the Swazi royals were still able to veto mm. things from the, the self-governed prospectors. This is sounding so far honestly more fair than a lot of these stories go. Honestly, like, for a lot of it, it is. They they get off pretty easy for the beginning, but we're, we're going to get into it. I Don't figured, worry. I figured it was coming, but I just thought while we're here, <laughs> I would say that this seems better than it could have potentially gone. Yeah, well, you, you're you speaking like two years too early. Right, okay, I'll be quiet. You go ahead. Uh, so tensions between the British and the Boers would keep rising towards the eventual Second Boer War, mm -hmm. which would end up happening in 1902. But uh, during this inter intervening period between the First and Second Wars, the British and the Boers are both just, like, eyeing up the Swazi oh. nation, licking their lips, like, man, that looks like a really helpful strategic position for this war. Yeah. They don't... Well, okay, so in 1890, the British and the Boers get together and have another convention, and the British rule in favor of allowing the Boers to establish Swaziland as a protectorate. Oh, uh, the Swazi didn't accept this result, so the British and the Boers had a second convention in 1894 that kind of seems to be the should we disregard the Swazi's oh. convention, 
And believe it or not, they landed on yes. Wow. Yeah. What a revelation. Okay. So damn the British every time. Just saying. Yeah. So the the Boers just kind of took Swaziland as a protectorate, regardless of the Swazis' reaction. Mm -hmm. I don't think they put up that much of a fight, but I'd be willing to bet. A large part of that is because they couldn't have won. Yeah. Um, that sucks. So in eight, July of 1899, uh, Subhuza II was born, and he was the son of King Nguane V. And Nguane would die in December of 1899, when Subhuza II was only three months old. Mm. Subhuza was chosen as the successor, and his grandmother was chosen to serve as regent until he came to power. So I just want to put the the note here that Subhuza is kind of officially the king in December of 1899, because his reign is going to be very important. Okay. Um, the Swazi would remain a Boer protectorate until the end of the Second Boer War in 1902, at which point all control of the region passed to the UK. And they would really, during this time, reduce the powers of the monarchs in Swaziland. Mm. So the monarchy still existed, but they certainly weren't able to do all that they had been able to do as an absolute monarchy uh, prior to being a protectorate. Mm. Uh, So they were originally given to a governor of the Transvaal region, but would eventually be transferred to the High Commissioner for Basutoland, Bekwanaland, and Swaziland. So Basutoland, as we learned before, is Lesotho. Mm. Uh, Bekwanaland is Botswana. Yep. And Swaziland, of course, is Eswatini. Gotcha. Uh, In 1909, they would sign the South Africa Act, and that would create the Union of South Africa, uh, so the Union of South Africa is not modern-day South Africa, but it is the political predecessor to it. Okay. Um, Swaziland was not made part of this union, but the treaty on which the union was founded did include provisions for the possible future inclusion of Swaziland. Um, But while it wasn't officially incorporated, they really did nothing to distinguish the borders. As far as I can tell, there was zero, like, border patrol or posts along the way. So the areas weren't really necessarily distinguished by the people who lived there during this period, or at least lived along the borders of South Africa and Eswatini. Right. Um, The Union... Of South Africa would make several requests to the UK to add Swaziland to the Union, but they would never be accepted. Apartheid government in South Africa would start in 1948. Mm. And I guess, I mean, like Britain did a lot of shit, but I guess they didn't want to just hand the country over to the apartheid government. Right. Um, but be that as it may... Like, right as apartheid took power, Britain basically took the idea of the Swazi transfer completely off the table permanently. Okay. But apartheid plans still included 
the eventual annexation of Swaziland. But in the 1950s, Britain started to make moves towards releasing Swaziland as an independent nation. And they would start to endow some of those powers back to the monarchy that they had taken away uh, in the early 1900s. In 1963, they would write the first constitution. Mm -hmm. I found a little bit of uh, confusingness around this constitution. I guess some people in uh, in Swaziland resisted the terms of it, but eventually they would be granted autonomy as a UK protectorate in 1967. And I just want to hop back here and say uh, something I accidentally skipped over. Uh, in 1921, Subhuza II became the acting king of Swaziland at 22 years old. Okay. Uh, in 19, yeah, yeah. In 1968, he is still in power when they gain independence on September 6th. Um, so after they they have their first run of independent elections. And then in 1973, I believe sort of right after the second round of independent elections, mm-hmm. Subhuza II would repeal that British constitution and restore the traditional Dlamini absolute monarchy in the capital. Okay. And he installed, I think this is also part of the sort of classical government structure, but he installed local governments uh, known as Tinkundla, uh, operating in, in the small regions. Okay. So from what I could see, Subhuza II was almost a really textbook example of an enlightened despot. Mm. Like, he was an absolute ruler who didn't really seem to allow any opposition, but I didn't find a lot of people saying anything bad about him. It seems like he really did a lot of good things for the country, improved infrastructure, improved the economy. I guess if you got the British out, it's... It's it's the problem with monarchies, though, is that you might get, like, the most incredible person who was raised from birth to do this, but mm-hmm. you might not. Yeah. Um, and I guess he just was that, you know, best-case scenario of a monarchy. Yeah. Uh, he would end up dying in 1982, Having been in power, he he was in power for 82 years and 254 days, uh, which means he was either just about to turn 83 or he was 83 because he had been in power from three months old. Right. Jeez. So this. That's got to be some kind of record, right? It is. (laughs) Subhuza II is the longest verifiable monarchical reign in history. Wow. Only. From what I could see, there are only, like, three or four people that have ever even been claimed to have ruled longer than Subhuza II, and they are, like, beyond verifiable yeah. date history. Wow. And probably not true. So there's a, a really good chance in my head that Subhuza is the longest-serving monarch in the history of the world. Yeah. Uh, just for the sake of comparison, like, Canada's favorite ancient, ancient monarch, Queen Elizabeth. I thought you were going to say Hazel McCallion. Queen Elizabeth is in the 69th year of her reign, so she would need to rule for 13 more years. She's already like 90-something, Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
because she's 13 more geez. years to hit the amount of time that Sabuza ruled. Honestly, the way she's going, it might be possible. That's fair. <laughs> she just keeps on trucking. But uh, the other sort of record we've got mm. from Sabuza the Second is. I did mention before we're going to come back to the kings having multiple wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Subhuza II gained himself the nickname the Bull of Swazi because he had uh, approximately 17 wives, and it seems there are 210 confirmed children on record for him. If you were one of those kids, you'd have so many siblings. You couldn't even keep track. That's like a small town Yeah, of siblings. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was looking at sort of record numbers for people with the most children, and a lot of those numbers are not exact. A lot of them are like sperm donors or like Mm. ancient rulers or whatever. Yeah. Um, But it would put him likely in the top 10 people with the most children of all time. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Can I just say, if you were one of those kids, you'd have to be really careful who you married. Statistically, (laughs) you just want to make sure that it's not one of your siblings you haven't met. (laughs) But uh, he would end up being succeeded by his son, Miswati III. And unfortunately, if this is one of the questions you're going to ask, I could not find out which number of child Miswati III was. That's what I was going to... I I tried. Okay, that's okay. I don't think it's the firstborn for what it's worth. I feel like it would have said if it was the firstborn. Yeah, also the firstborn's probably, like, also super ancient at the time of Sabuza the Second's death. That's a decent point. And, uh, yeah, Miswati was 14 when Sabuza died. Yeah. So, um, he would end up, like, he was 14 when his father died in 82. Mm. He would end up ascending to, like, acting ruler in 1986 at the age of 18. And during those intervening four years, uh, I guess his father had worked a lot with a royal advisory council called the Likoko. Mm-hmm. And during those intervening four years, I guess they had consolidated a lot of power and Miswadi III saw them as a threat and immediately dissolved them. Um, he installed a lot of family members in important cabinet positions. He had 200 to choose from. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't get over the 200 Not, not to children. mention the number of cousins and stuff. Like, this is a family line that goes back a lot, and the, the rulers have always had many. I believe he has 14, Miswadi III. Uh, but I didn't write that down, actually. That's just me yeah. trying to pick a number off the top of my head. Um, but his reign has definitely not been the enlightened despot rule that Sabuza oh. II's was, at least from what I could see. Mm. Um, he has been criticized a lot for corruption and excess. He has consolidated a lot of power and wealth for the royal family mm-hmm. as the country is not doing as well as it was under his father. Okay. Um, and the last real little bit of information I have for us is that King Miswadi III would rename the country to Eswatini in April of 2018. Was there a reason for that? I think it's just, there's a lot of places that have changed their names from like the Anglicization mm. or, or French 
version of yeah. of whatever they were named by colonizers. So I I didn't find it listed in so many words, but that seems like the obvious reason to me. Gotcha. Cool. Thank you. That no was really problem. interesting. I've got some uh, fun facts to jump into for yeah, us. Yeah, I love the fun facts. It's my favorite part. Oh, fun facts are so <laughs> great. Uh, so the coat of arms of Eswatini features a lion and an elephant supporting a Swazi shield to support the joint rule of mm. the lion and the queen mother, yeah. like the lion and the she-elephant. Um, above the shield is a crown of feathers, and this crown of feathers is a is a ceremonial headdress that the king wears during the Inkwala ceremony. So the Inkwala ceremony is a, I think, annual ceremony when there is an acting king. Okay. I don't think it happens when there's not. Okay. Um, but basically the centerpiece of the Inkwala, from what I could see, is a dance in which the king is the central mm. performer. And... If we jump back for a second to 1899, when Sabhuza II's father died when he was only three months old, Mm -hmm. his father actually died dancing the Inkwala, as far as I could see. Oh. Yeah. All right. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Although maybe, I don't know, you can go out dancing. Could be worse. Yeah. The uh, the national dish, which unfortunately <laughs> I could not make because this sounds amazing, uh, is the Karoo Roast Ostrich Steak. And this does seem to be an official national dish. Uh, so what this is, is ostrich steak thinly sliced with a white wine and cream sauce, mm. usually served with like a pumpkin and maize puree. I think it uses... Uh, a lot of pepper and juniper berries for flavoring. Um, a lot of the national cuisine uses maize especially, but pumpkin as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we are going to be making <laughs> is just corn. We On Honestly, <laughs> yeah, we, we looked for something more interesting we could make, and none of it was stuff we could get the ingredients for here, so we did see that they eat a lot of corn on the cob as street food in Eswatini, so we are going to do that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> corn on the cob is a classic. Uh, so in 1985, if you'll remember, Maswati, his father died in 82 and he took power in 86. Mm-hmm. So during that period, his mother and the uh, the current Lovu Kadi, Queen Natombi, who was the queen regent at the time... Mm-hmm would actually pose for a work by Andy Warhol. Uh, he did a work called Reigning Queens in 1985, where he did these, like, fun silkscreen pictures of four female monarchs in power at the time. It was Queen Natombi, uh, Queen Elizabeth of the UK, Queen Margrethe of Denmark, and Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands. Okay, that's super cool. It's super fun. So I will put a link to uh, the image of that in the show notes so everyone can get a look at it. And then I've got uh, just a couple famous people I want to dive into here. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got a a British-based actress who was born uh, when it was still called Swaziland in 1969, uh, Noma Dumizweni has uh, won two Olivier Awards and been nominated for a Tony Award. 
So she has won two Olivier's for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. She won for Raisin in the Sun in 2006. And she won for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in 2017. No kidding! Where she played Hermione Granger. I was going to say, was she Hermione? Because I remember there was that whole thing. That whole controversy. Oh my god. That was absurd. It was so dumb. It was so dumb! So dumb. Just <laughs> cast your show and get on with your life. You don't make it a whole thing. Sorry. And then she she would reprise her role as Hermione on Broadway mm. in 2018, where she would get a Tony nomination, but would ultimately lose that year to Laurie Metcalf. I have an off-topic question. Sure. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Is that a musical or a play? Just a play, I thought right? you've read it. I have not read it. I refuse. Uh, oh, I'm pretty sure it's just a play. It's going to tarnish my already tarnished Harry Potter memories. I'm pretty sure it's just a play. Okay. I thought so, too. Um, they have uh, Luke Hall, who is a swimmer. He actually trained at the University of Toronto, oh, which really? I thought was fun. Cool. Uh, he would compete in the twenty or 2008 and 2012 Olympics for... Uh, I guess Swaziland. It was so recent, the name change. Uh, Ultimately coming actually in fourth in 2012, just one spot short of a medal. Still, though, that's very good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've got Patricia McFadden, who is a radical feminist writer and a prominent member of the anti-apartheid writer. So she uh, worked as the editor of the Southern African Feminist Review and has been teaching in universities since the 70s. Wow. And then I've got, um, excuse me, one that's got a bit of a story to it, but I thought these guys were cool as hell, so I just want to talk about them a bit. Uh, So there's a guy named Karl Krack is his stage name. He was born, he's a German-descended, Swaziland-born musician. He was born Karl Bohm in Swaziland in 1971, like with the two dots over the Mm. O and the H. I assume. So he would go on to be become a techno-punk musician based huh. out of Berlin and a founding member of, like, a kind of niche, but also kind of uh, influential if this is your niche. Uh, he would go on to become a founding member of this band called Atari Teenage Riot, who he would play with from 1992 until his overdose death in 2001. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, but... ATR, as I'm going to call them just because their name's long, Mm. uh, are an anti-fascist anarchist punk band that toured through the 90s with a lot of the most influential political acts of the time. We're talking Wu-Tang Clan, Rage Against the Machine, Nine Inch Nails. Like, these guys had the connections. That's great. Uh, I'm going to link some of their music as well because it is batshit crazy. They didn't do the anthem, did they? No. Ah, oh, damn it. It's, it's that just, would have been like the cherry on top of the... Anyway. It's your... just Karl Krack, who is uh, from Swaziland. Okay. The rest of the members are German. I thought maybe there was a chance, but... Uh, but okay. there's a fun story about ATR that I'm going to relate because I was just learning about them. It happened after Karl Krack's death, unfortunately, but it was too good to pass up. Mm. Uh, so they would release an app to the German app store for Apple in 2010 in advance of their reunion. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had broken up, I think, a couple months before Karl Krack's death uh, temporarily and then never ended up getting back together. 
uh, but they reunited in 2010 and released this app in advance of the reunion that had every video and every song the band had ever released for free. Uh, it also included, though, a feature called Riot Sounds, uh, and it's named for the band's longtime slogan, Riot Sounds Produce Riots. Uh, the, this app was basically a riot sound soundboard. So somewhere in the mid to late nineties, they had brought on, I don't think I wrote his name here. They had brought on this like German, I think Japanese German soundscape artist who helped them make a bunch of sounds they would play at their shows. And they played these at a Mayday riot in 1999 where the whole band would end up being arrested for inciting violence. Wow. So this soundboard on their 2010 app was then sounds inspired by like the sounds they had played at their infamous 1999 Mayday riot. And it would end up being blocked from release on Apple on the grounds <laughs> that uh, I got a quote, actually, yeah. uh, on the grounds that it contained sounds which trigger hysteria and panic within the audience. Is that objective? I guess <laughs> the, the band would end up finding a legal loophole a little later on where they released the app without the Riot Sounds feature and mm. then immediately updated it to patch in oh the Riot God. Sounds I love feature. that. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I couldn't not tell that story. Uh, the band encouraged fans in a press release with the app to experiment with the Riot Sounds feature outdoors with large speakers. Mm. I just thought that was so great. That is really great. I love that. <laughs> so we're going to be trying out a new thing today where um, a lot of the time we will have questions for each other that we don't want to ask because we know the other person is saying every single thing they yep. have learned about the country and we don't want to like catch them with their pants down not knowing something. It's happened. I got stressed out. So... Uh, <laughs> Today I've asked Kate to write down some questions she has for me that she thinks I might be able to look up answers for in the uh, period while we take a break here and listen to the anthem. And it's not a guarantee that I will. There's even a good chance that I tried to find the answers to some of these questions while I was researching. But uh, yeah, we're going to hear what Kate has to ask me and I will do my best to come up with answers for them when we come back. So I say all the questions now? Yeah. Do I have to like pick three or? How many did you write down? I have a lot of like, I don't have that many. Okay, go There's ahead. There's a few very like quick ones. Sure. For example, I'm curious about the religion and the languages in okay. Eswatini. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious about current... I, I can say the, the yeah. main language is Siswati. The main religion is Christianity, mainly Protest Protestantism. Cool, thank you. Um, I'm also curious about sort of current industry. I know there was a lot of mining. I would mining like to know... Mining and agriculture. Now, also. See, if you answer all the questions now, <laughs> what are we going to talk about when we come You're back? giving me the small ones that I already okay. know the answers okay. to. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, uh, that was just some notes that I took. I was going to ask you when the British show up because I felt like it was late, but then that got explained. You actually answered a lot of these while we were talking. Um, oh, the leaders. Okay. I, I would like, if possible, some more clarification about the how the leaders are chosen 
for example, if you have as the... 210 children? I mean, there's that. There's also those more like local governments. Right. I'm a little curious about that still as well. And okay. also about like what happens if you have like the the king and the queen queen regent what were we calling that queen regent yeah is is queen around mother. also what happens if the queen mother dies does someone replace like who replaces her yeah so it's not always the king's mother okay it, it is always a like important female usually family member okay. of the the king i think at one or two points in the nation's history there were male regents okay um because like a regent the queen mother is always the queen mother but they're only the regent when the king has not ascended to the throne right um so i think once or twice there wasn't a woman who was able or willing or whatever to to lead in that intervening period Mm. and there were brief male regencies but i don't think they were particularly important okay Okay, so then I guess my main question just comes down to like the transfer of power sure. and those smaller on, local on governments. On both a royal and local level. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I will uh, look into that, and we will take a break to have some corn on the cob, and we will listen to Kulunkulu Nikati Wetibusisu Timaswati, or O Lord Our God, Bestower of the Blessings of the Swazi. Welcome back to In All of Us Command. We have just taken a listen to Kulunkulu Nikari Wetibusisu Timaswati, the national anthem of Eswatini. Uh, This one is not bad, right? Yeah, it's not bad. It's It's not not my favorite one, but uh, it's certainly got something to it. Um, I've got a little bit of backstory for us. First, actually, I want to address your question from before the break. Yeah. Uh, so I did look in a little bit into how succession works in Eswatini, and I found it very obtuse, uh, okay. very impenetrable to someone who's not a part of it, at least. Um, it's okay. The answer could be there is no answer, or I could not find one. Well, what I found out is, okay, what I'm not clear about mm. is I'm not sure if Okay, I've approached this all wrong. What they choose is not the successor. What they choose is who's going to be the next queen mother. Oh, okay. The queen mother they choose. I don't know if all of the king's wives can only have one son and then he just stops having kids with them or if they can like only choose a wife with one son. Okay. But his first, the king's first two wives are chosen for him at coronation and are known as ritual wives, and they cannot okay. become the oh. queen mother. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the firstborn is off the table. Right. 
Um, right. Yeah, it was really confusing, huh. but essentially what I found out that makes it even more confusing to me in the modern day mm-hmm. is that historically the next queen mother position, like of all the wives of the king, have been chosen by the Likoko, which if you'll call back is the royal advisory council that Maswati Third dissolved right. immediately after taking power. Right. And as he's still in power... What are they going to do? Yeah, I'm not... Going forward. I'm sure somebody has an answer to that somewhere. I'm sure you're but right. But I don't, so... Okay. Uh, from where I'm sitting, mm-hmm. it seems like there is a bit of impending succession confusion. Okay, that's fair. It seemed kind of ripe for confusion when you have that many... That many potential heirs. Yeah. And especially when you're not just going, it's the firstborn, the exactly. rest of you can shut the hell exactly. up. Exactly, like, which is what most people do. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah, I'm just... I'm still sort of computing, like, how that works and what it would Yeah, I went mean, to a couple places trying to find a clear answer. I found a whole essay about why it was bad and why the writer of the essay didn't like the succession system in Eswatini. It's a thesis. But it was like a really long thing and I was making dinner. You're not expected to read somebody's PhD thesis (laughs) in the interest of answering my random question. Uh, I, I can, I guess, link to this person's paper about why they think it is bad. Uh, if anybody I, wants to read this, yeah, do I, that and I let us know how it is. It, so I do not agree <laughs> or disagree yeah. with the person's position. Okay. Uh, let's talk a bit about the anthem. Yes, let's. Uh, you have some history and some stuff? I have some history. I don't okay. have that much history. Okay, well, let's hear it. So the lyrics for the anthem were written by a guy named Andreas Inoke Fanyana Similane. And Similane is actually a name that I found connected to a couple important people throughout uh, at least the last one or two hundred years of, of probably the last one hundred years of the history. Okay. Um, I don't know if they're related or if it's just a really common last name in the language or, like, if it's a major family or something. I could find virtually nothing at all about uh, Fanyana Similane. Basically, all I could find out about him is that he wrote the lyrics to the anthem. This happens a lot. I did find what looked like a crazy conspiracy page on Facebook where Mm -hmm. someone linked to a no longer active magazine article that apparently implied that it was not Similane who wrote the lyrics to the anthem, but rather his wife. I could not get a hold of the actual article, just the Facebook post being like, look at this shit. Uh, the Facebook group was real upset about the idea that it was Simulane's wife that wrote the lyrics. Yeah. Um, I don't know that's the, the one fun wrinkle I could find in the Simulane story. I can see why people would be mad about that. Uh, who I have a little bit more information on is the guy who composed the music. Okay. And that's a guy named David Kenneth Rycroft. Uh, now, Rycroft was a South African-born but British-based... I was going to say he sounds British. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a lot of white people in South Africa yeah, that's back true. in these days. That's true. Um, he, he's a South African-born, British-based 
linguist and ethnomusicologist, mm-hmm. and he worked a lot across uh, like Eswatini and Namibia. He's known particularly for his work on Zulu music and culture, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Um, he authored a number of English to Siswati dictionaries and phrase books, which is hmm. the, the Swazi language. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did that in the 70s and 80s, like after he had written the music for the anthem. I thought it was interesting that he didn't write the lyrics, but he did write all these translation mm-hmm. books. Um, his composition of the national anthem would actually end up earning him the Siswati praise name Mkosi. Uh and I couldn't find anything online that would translate Siswati to English for me. What I did find out is that uh, Mikosi is the Zulu and Sosa word for sort of festival or ceremony. Okay. Um, I know there's at least a lot of geographical relation between uh, the Swazis and the Zulus, so I don't know if maybe there's some linguistic connection there. Mm-hmm. I thought... Maybe it could have been given as sort of a master of ceremonies title, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the best guess I have as to the translation of that, okay. and that's a very loose guess. <laughs> um, what I found written about Rycroft's inclusion, and I found sort of the same sentence written a lot of places with zero justification for it. Okay. So it's something that people seem to agree on but no one seems interested in elaborating on okay um, Rycroft seems to have been chosen as a way to sort of compromise between western and swazi sensibilities when creating the anthem okay and i found this was a thing that came up sort of more than i expected when i was looking into their culture like when i looked into that ostrich steak that sounded Mm -hmm. amazing a lot of the articles and recipes about it talked about how Swazi cuisine is a blend of sort of Southeast African cuisine and French cuisine and I found that really interesting because at least as far as I've researched here they've had virtually no dealings with the French yeah I don't know Maybe they're just passionate about it. Maybe, yeah. I mean, everyone (laughs) seems to love French cooking, as far as I can tell. That's true. But, uh, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that they've they've got all these sort of compromises in their culture that, I don't know, seem a little out of place to me. Hmm. Um, Do you want to get into talking about our categories here? Yeah, that sounds good. Did you say what year the anthem was? Yeah, sorry. It was adopted uh, with independence in 1968. Okay. okay, that was sort of what I assumed, but I also didn't know if because of the name change, something had happened. But it's true, the name doesn't come up that much, I, if at all, in the yeah. lyrics. So. No, it doesn't really. Um, Not in the just, just the, the Swazi people. Yes, which goes no matter Which I what, think right? possibly there's some change to Swati over... I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm really sorry if I've been using the wrong word for any of this. I'm trying to keep up to date with all of it and also give the context of the historical names. And Plus it's a sometimes whole... a lot of names to keep up with. There's a whole language thing <laughs> yeah. also. So it's, yeah, it's... it's cool. um, so let's talk about the lyrics a little bit. 
Yeah, so I'll be honest, on just a read through, the lyrics did not blow me out of the water. They seemed pretty general, pretty like typical anthem stuff. Yeah. Like God is good, our leader is good, we have, you know, a nice country. They talk about the hills and the rivers. It lacks a little bit that like hard thesis statement that we have seen in some of the other anthems to me. And I find it interesting too that it's so thoroughly religious because I like compared to a lot of the nations we found I didn't find there was that super heavy presence of missionaries in this story yeah compared to Lesotho or Samoa or Sao Tome a lot of these nations have been overwhelmed with missionaries Mm -hmm. and it makes sense that they're so heavily Christian after so much Christian missionaries weighing down on their story, but there is virtually no missionary presence in this story. I don't think I mentioned missionaries in this story. I don't think you did either. Maybe it's just the surrounding countries. Maybe. That's a decent point. They were like, all right, we'll do that too. I'm I'm not sure. And I mean, I'm sure sure there were missionaries, but they don't seem to have been affecting things on it. Like Lesotho, he took three French missionaries into his home and made them his main advisors. Like they were a big deal over there. So the, the lyrics, I agree. They're, they're a little lacking in, for, in something for me. It's just sort of lukewarm. Yeah. It's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not, you know, super, like giving me a feel of like a main takeaway for this place. Yeah. What I will bring up, and this is maybe a bit more, actually, maybe I'll save this for historical significance. Cause I do think there's, there's a couple things being done in here that I, I would talk about, but okay. um, just as a plain piece of, of lyric, I'm going to give it a four and a half. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm going to go three. Three. Yeah. Oof. It's not doing anything for me. All right. Let's talk about the music, okay, which then, I sorry. think is, yeah, I, I saw you perk up there. I think the music is, is really the biggest strength of this anthem. The music I found in the, the instrumental version felt to me very sort of church-like. If you had said this is a hymn from a church, I'd have been like, cool, yeah, probably. Um, but I find it almost like a little haunting in places. It's, yeah. It's cool. The music is cool. I really like, because what I found in looking for different versions is that there really is that one instrumental version, that one vocal version, and then one Sega Master System version. Yeah, I love that also. Oh, it's great. It's It's just that that exists is fantastic. Um, It's very rigid in its arrangement, and I think it's interesting that Rycroft's specific arrangement not just a melody like mm-hmm. a lot of like you can do whatever you want with O Canada yeah. do, 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 do. it's it's pretty straightforward but Rycroft's arrangement seems mm-hmm. to be just as seminal to the whole piece and I think that's really interesting yeah and with people talking about the compromise between western and eastern I think those overlapping vocal lines mm-hmm. are a big part of that I think we're hearing very, like you said, church-like, very classical Western harmonies, but we're hearing them with that more like polyphonic African rhythm to it. And I think that I wish it was less 
sort of flattened out, but uh, there is some some character here. Yeah. And I like that those overlaps are not an arranger's choice. They're they're a very specific part of the anthem's mm-hmm. DNA. Yeah. I agree. I think for a rating for the music, I don't know, I liked it. I'm going to go eight. Eight, yeah. I think I am going to do the same. Background story is a little lacking for this one. There's not much to go on here, but this is also kind of becoming the story of many anthems. It's just like there's a person wrote the lyrics and there's a person wrote the music and it was independence. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Sometimes. Um, It'll be interesting to see what we get with countries that have been independent for a very long time. It's true. And Um, not countries that gained independence in the last century, which is really pretty much everything we've done. We've been doing the grand tour of Africa. Yeah. um, And it's, it's true. There is definitely a, a sort of narrative here that is not like, it's not boring, but it is the same pretty much. There's a lot of parallels everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a large part of it is because, like all these countries came in and treated it like one oh, big ab- same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's I'm not blaming anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of the way it worked out. But I, I do think there's some interest to uh, David Kenneth Rycroft's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think he did have a certain amount of respect and clout within the right fields. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting that one of the only things I could find about Rycroft were actually several obituaries from like fellow Mm -hmm. academics who were heartbroken and aghast to learn of David Rycroft's death. Like they admired this guy. They had been planning trips to Namibia with this guy. They, he seems to be, if you are into South African ethnomusicology, one of the giants of the field. So <laughs> cool. that's kind of cool. That is. It is. I love a niche thing. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to go six and a half. Yeah, I was also feeling six. So for significance to the country, I do think... Uh, I mean, I do think it's interesting, maybe not interesting, but significant to the history. I'm glad that the Swazi ethnic group is shouted out mm-hmm. here uh, because, like, the creation of the Swazi people is such an essential part of the history of the nation, uh, and it, they are such an overwhelming majority of the people in the country. Mm-hmm. Um I do think that's a really quintessential part of the history of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I really like is the last line where they, they say establish and fortify us. And the national motto of Eswatini going back uh, as far as I could see uh, was we are a fortress. Huh. Um, just this this idea of impenetrability and safety i like that i think a lot of countries take the conqueror route yeah um i think it's cool to when i think it's something no we're just here and we're gonna stay yeah yeah and i mean you see it too in the history in 1820 where there there was that parallel with lesotho where they have to run Mm -hmm. from sort of where they had started and they find a new 
a newer, safer place that they can really settle down and start to build something. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do think there's there's some cool stuff going on here with regards to significance. I think there is too. I'm going to go seven. Yeah, that's where I was going to go to. Should we disagree more on the ratings? Yeah. No need It'll to force it. it happens. Yeah, it's true. X Factor, I do think it's a little lacking. I don't think it's nothing... Uh, those overlapping lines are really cool and the way they come together is cool and it's cool to hear some maybe less familiar rhythms and like ways these lines interact with each other Mm. with the more familiar harmonies maybe makes it a little more approachable than I mean for me as someone who has no reason to be listening (laughs) to this anthem maybe makes it a little more approachable than if it were more distinctly Swazi in its composition. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't have no X factor, but it's not the most X factory either. I'm going to say five and a half. Okay. I was going to go maybe four. Okay. Let's total those all up. What's your total? Our total is 59.5. Okay. So, again, right in the middle of the pack, uh, pretty much where I expected it to go Mm -hmm. uh, when I was showing it to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe if you'd been, like, super thrilled with what you were hearing, I'd have expected it to go a bit higher. But, uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty solid rating, I'd say. It is. Uh, Let's talk a bit about corn. Corn! Corn is great. We got some really good corn. We did. We lucked out. And this is the truth about corn on the cob, though, is, like, it really depends how good the particular corn you are eating is yeah, if you and get we're still getting corn, states corn like ontario corn's not in season yet so we got lucky getting corn I as wish good as we did could have got ontario corn but we'll do it again in like the real summertime and yeah we'll make it up don't worry uh but yeah it was good we boiled it some some butter some salt some pepper mm-hmm. it was great yeah. it was delightful we um, had steak on the side and i got some of the cheese that was on the steak on my corn and i have to say that was pretty good oh yeah, yeah. The, the blue cheese yeah nice yeah corn dipped in steak juice not bad nice not exactly traditional but not bad either <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh let's take a second then and roll our magical 206 sided dice to yeah. see what i am doing in two weeks Give me something with a very late letter because my number is 201. Ooh, 201. Okay, okay. You get Vatican City, my friend. Hell yes! (laughs) Third Enclave City! I had my fingers crossed for this shit. (laughs) This is better than we could have planned it, I think. Oh, I cannot wait for Vatican City. (laughs) This shit's gonna be messy. It's going to be great. I'm excited. I'm excited. Oh, me too. Tune in next week and we will learn all about Ghana from Kate. Also, all of you people listening and not following us on Twitter, we see you. Yeah. We see you in the statistics. I'm going to take this moment to remind everyone that they can send us an email at uh, inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com or they can follow us on Twitter at IAOUC podcast. We would love to hear from you. We would love to have you follow us. Yeah. 
give us a follow. We will uh, try as best as we can to tweet about, like, nation and anthem-related things. I bet we can find a calendar for that somewhere. Yo, that's a good point. Yeah, we're going to do that, and yeah. the tweets will improve. The we're, tweets will improve. We're working on our social Kate media. the other day that it was okay. uh, her job. It's true. I did sign up for that, <laughs> and then I ignored it. I, I mixed um, the episodes. Yep. So, <laughs> so social media is in, is in my court. Um, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better at Twitter, I promise. I believe in you. If you follow me, I will do especially better. So nice. There's yeah. some incentive. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with Ghana.